eyes See the thorn twist in your side of hand and twist of fate on a bed of nails she makes me wait and I wait without you with or without you with or without you through the storm the shore you give it all but I want more and I'm waiting for you with or without you about marriage <laughs> let's pray father we ask that you would help us to preach your gospel 
And Lord Jesus, it stresses us out because it's different than us. So open us, open our hearts, help us to have courage, help us to trust you, and may your seed be implanted deep in our hearts that one day, Lord Jesus, we would look just like you. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Hey, uh, several years ago, I shared with you something that happened in my past during the late 70s, uh, along about the age of 16. That's, that's me right there, uh, yearbook. I, uh, I experienced some chest pains, and uh, my parents took me into the doctor, and they x-rayed my chest, and it turns out that my heart was actually this giant throne room the kind, you know, that big hunters or big game hunters have, a, a throne room full of trophies. It was like a, a trophy room, and my ego was sitting in the middle of this trophy room in a big stuffed chair, smoking a pipe and humming the James Bond theme song. <laughs> Over the fireplace, stuffed and mounted, was the head and shoulders of Aaron McGinley. In ninth grade, I held... Aaron's hand during seventh period, and uh, now she was a trophy over the fireplace in my trophy room. Robin Davidge was stuffed and mounted in a pose over in the corner in a disco pose like this because uh, in 10th grade she talked to me and she was a Liberty Bell pom-pom. That was a big deal. Next to me, Becky Tucker had been made into a beautiful uh, floor lamp. I had kissed Becky for 30 minutes straight in a parking lot across from a bank. I knew that because I was timing us, watching the clock, so I could <laughs> tell my friends when I got back. And I shared that story at church several years ago, and Becky's sister Mariana happened to be there that day, and she told Becky, and Becky took me out to lunch. And uh, fortunately, Becky was kind, because it appears that she kind of had a trophy room too. Aaron, Robin, Becky, a few other trophies... Uh, like these, I had won their affections, you see, consumed them, conquered them. Now, I was at least a nominal Christian, so by that I don't mean some sort of sexual conquest, so much as they had fallen for me, liked me, at least a little bit. And yet, you know, once I picked the fruit, it, it no longer tasted sweet. That was the weird thing. Actually, I'm not even sure I had the capacity to taste it. You see, it really wasn't the, the fruit that I craved so much as the conquest of it. To make a better me, to fill my trophy room. And so if they fell for me, they weren't so valuable to me, for indeed they fell for me. <laughs> See what I mean? And I was still me. They hadn't fulfilled me. My prize trophy was Lisa. And that's because uh, she had a cheerleader uniform. And because she dumped me. But soon after, I declared a mutual dumping and prized her above all the others because she was too good for me. Currently, I was dating this girl, this new girl. Yeah, and... 
She was like Chantilly and lace and a pretty face, ponytail hanging down. Yeah, she was gorgeous. Until, of course, I thought I conquered her, captured her, consumed her, and then the song would stop. And I'd call her and say, you know, uh, maybe we should just break it up. And she'd say, okay. And then the song would start again. Chantilly and lace and a pretty face. And she became real attractive to me again. <laughs> and I'd go trophy hunting again. But you know, a trophy is a thing. And to bag a trophy is to turn a person into a thing. And that leaves you kind of lonely. And so you see, it really wasn't even them mounted and stuffed in the walls of my trophy room, just my image of them. In fact, I really didn't even know any of them. They didn't know me. They could only know the image that I presented of me, and that image was a lie, you know, a cool together dude on the swim team. I couldn't let them see that I was just totally freaked out and insecure Almost every night, no kidding, I'd pray that this new girl wouldn't come to one of my swim meets and see me lose because I lost every time. And even worse than that, she might see my flabby abdominal muscles in a Speedo. <laughs> I was an actor impersonating my image of myself, trying to impress other actors, impersonating their image of themselves, and no self could ever afford to truly be naked in front of another self, at least not in any serious emotional, spiritual kind of way. You see, it really makes sense to play hard to get. It's just that when you do, no one can afford to be gotten. <laughs> and I wanted to get. I just was scared to be gotten. So in a way, my trophy room, that throne room, my trophy room felt, well, it felt safe. It was a fortress all around me. But that me was terribly lonely and getting pretty scared. I, I was scared, I remember thinking this, scared that I could never be married, for as soon as I had a wife, I'd no longer find that wife attractive. In fact, I'd just told Susan Coleman that I was tired of our relationship. And I remember that spring night in 1978, she just said, okay. And that time she really meant it. And all of a sudden she became attractive again. That was the pattern with me. But on this spring evening, I felt like I really hurt her. And this time I was really scared and really alone. A taker, a consumer, unable to love, and so always alone. You know, the very first thing in all of Scripture that God declares not good is alone. being alone, and I was alone. You know, sometimes single people are the least alone, and sometimes married people are the most alone. I was alone, surrounded by love, alone, and that's not good. It's not the image of God, and that would explain the chest pains. <laughs> was a heartache. On the sixth day of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man, Adam, in our own image and likeness. 
And theologians argue over, you know, what exactly constitutes that image of God, but it appears to be at least three things. First, God says our image. God is a trinity. He is so not alone. Three persons, one substance, and that substance is love, God's love. So Adam, which means humanity, is to be made in the image of love, like a a communion of persons. And that communion creates life. When God says, um, let us make man in our own image, he has just been creating that whole time. And so secondly, Adam, humanity, is to be a creator in the image of the creator. The image is to be a creator, not a consumer, a taker, a devourer, a desecrator. Thirdly, Scripture is very clear that the image of God, the image of God, is not perfected on the planet Earth until 3 p.m. on a Friday, the sixth day of the week, just before Easter, sometime along about 30 A.D., as Jesus, the ultimate Adam, hanging naked on a tree, lifts his head and cries out, It is finished! Scripture says, He is the perfect image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the image of God is a creative communion that looks like Jesus. On the sixth day then, Scripture reads, God created Adam, humanity, in his very own image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As the sixth day ends, God sees everything that he has made, and behold, it's all very good. I don't think our human eyes have yet seen the end of the sixth day. On the seventh day, God rests for everything. Everything is good and finished. And so like we talked about last week, or two weeks ago, Genesis 1-1 through 2-4 is like the index to all reality, the history of all time. We've preached on that quite a bit, but now by Genesis 2-7, we're back in time in day six, for God is making Adam, and that happens on day six. In verse 18, God says, it is not good that Adam should be alone. First thing declared not good in all of Scripture. And now this is just like hugely important. But do you understand that Adam's situation is declared not good before the fall? He is declared incomplete before the fall. The situation is not good on the sixth day because everything is good on the seventh day. And you know, I think for all who are in any way alone, it's still the sixth day. The six, six, six day. God says it's not good for Adam, humanity, to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. When God says that, remember that Adam is like a he-she named humanity, right? He has not yet been divided into male and female. 
that humanity, all humanity needs a helper. Now check this out. That word helper is a masculine word, azer. In Scripture, that word azer is almost exclusively used for God. Twenty-five times in the Psalms we are told, humanity, God is your helper. He's your helper. Adam doesn't seem to get it. And so next, God has Adam name all the animals. The Talmud, you know, which was the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, describes how God brought all the animals by uh, Adam in pairs. And Adam comments, gosh, each one of them has a partner. How come I don't have a partner? See, he doesn't get it. And we don't get it. We've been made for God. So Adam is alone, get this, Adam is alone in the presence of God. Do you see what that means? Adam is alone in the presence of love. God is love. That means Adam's loneliness is a subjective reality, not an objective reality. Adam is like trapped inside of his own heart. Alone in the presence of love. Trapped in darkness, surrounded by light. He is not good, standing in the presence of all good. Adam is not yet in the image of God. Just as I was not yet in the image of God, sitting alone in the dark trophy room of my heart, humming the 007 theme song. Adam doesn't get it. And how is God going to help Adam get it? Get love, light, goodness? How's God going to create humanity in his image? Well, you know the story. God puts Adam to sleep, and he takes from Adam's side and forms that side into Eve. God brings Eve to Adam, and Adam looks at her and he exclaims, Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, chandelier lace and a pretty face, a ponytail hanging down. And then Genesis reads as follows, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, two persons, one substance. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Two persons and one substance, marriage. Scripture refers to marriage as a covenant. Throughout Scripture, God redeems relationships through covenants, and marriage is a covenant. When people take vows, they, when people get married, they, they take vows and they enter a covenant. They are vows to love each other no matter what, to never leave each other nor forsake each other. Well, it was Jesus, the Lamb of God, who quoted Genesis 2.24 in Matthew 19, saying, The two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. You see, he knew marriage is a covenant. And in that day, when two people, two parties, would form a covenant, the common practice was to take an animal like a lamb 
It was called cutting a covenant because they cut the animal in half, lay the halves on the ground, walked between the pieces of the halves, reciting the terms of the covenant, saying to each other, may it be done unto me as it was done unto this animal if I break the terms of our covenant. And you see, marriage is a covenant. Adultery and divorce are breaking covenant. And if you've ever been through something like that, you know that it feels like taking a body and just ripping it in two. God did say the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is a covenant, and breaking covenant is tearing a body in two. So in Matthew 19, when Jesus quotes Genesis and explains marriage and divorce, the disciples say, well, it would just be better not to get married. (laughs) They got it. They said, yeah, this marriage thing, this is crazy. This is insane. It's a covenant with no escape clauses except death. You see, when you covenant yourself to fallen people, you can really get hurt. You can get crucified. And when you let them, it's called forgiveness. But getting married is giving someone permission to crucify you. That's why years ago I heard on Rush Limbaugh that in West Virginia they were considering putting warning labels on marriage licenses, you know. And I thought that was really a pretty good idea. I don't think they decided to do it, but I did it. I made warning labels in every wedding I do. I put a warning label right there on the groom's chest. In fact, this is the one I slapped on Bill's chest when Francis and Bill got married just two weeks ago. It reads like this. Warning, marriage is a covenant ratified by God. The Surgeon General has determined that there are certain chemicals and hormones in the bloodstream at the time of your ceremony which cause dizziness and poor perception. These hormones commonly subside on your honeymoon. Use extreme caution. The person you're about to marry is a reprobate, and they just slap it on their chest. No, I'm serious as a heart attack. Marriage is profoundly dangerous. It makes me nervous when people ask me to do their ceremonies because I know how dangerous it is. And once you understand it, you really should ask yourself, who's crazy enough to ever really do this? I have a friend named Josh. For years, he's been absolutely consumed with a woman. He rescued her from an impoverished and abusive family. She married Josh for his power and his money and his good looks. And yet she's so intimidated by him. She was so intimidated she would never give him her heart. Actually, she gave her heart to anyone that would pay. She sunk into prostitution and Josh would walk the streets at night with money in his pockets trying to find her and buy her back. She gave herself to vile men, but was frigid with Josh. She grew ugly. The counselor, the counselor said that she was hiding her shame. And yet still, Josh thought of her. He dreamed of her. He followed her everywhere she went. When she wept, he would weep. When she laughed, he would laugh, and he would not forsake her. 
And he told me, he told me, Peter, if I had it to do over again, I would do it in a heartbeat. Eventually, on a Friday, with the help of some corrupt politicians, she tried to kill Josh. (laughs) Tried to kill him. You know, people argue about if and when it's okay to get a divorce. Well, let me tell you, if anyone ever had a valid reason for divorce, his name is Josh. Joshua is the Hebrew. Jesus is the Greek. Jesus is the English. Jesus. He would do such a thing. He did do such a thing. And he is crazy. He is crazy with love for you. We are his unfaithful bride, and he is our helper. We, is, we are, we is, we are his bride who has prostituted ourselves with idols. We did kill him, and with every sin we nail him to that tree of law. Never forget that in our faith, the picture of love, well, it's not some Hallmark card some poem or some scented candle. No, the very image and likeness of love, and God is love, the very image of love is a beaten, scourged, naked man drenched in blood, nailed to this tree of dark knowledge, crying out, Father, forgive him. That's love. And he's hanging there because he vowed himself to an unfaithful bride whom he will not forsake. That's Josh. That's Jesus. That's our Lord. On the cross, his very body is broken in order to ratify an eternal covenant of grace in which he fulfills all the terms. On that cross, his blood is shed to buy us back, to pay for all the ways we've already broken covenant with him. His body broken and bloodshed are covenant communion for his bride. He is God's grace fit for his brides, fits for his bride's shame. He's God's truth fit for our lies. God's life fit for our death. God's vow fit for our unfaithfulness. He's the helper fit for humanity, his bride, and he is the perfect image of God, the ultimate eschatos Adam, the image of God made perfect through suffering. That's what Hebrews says, so think about that. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the perfect image of God. And on the sixth day of creation, before the fall, God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. That means Jesus Christ and him crucified is not plan B, but plan A all along. And that means that to make you in his image and teach you of your helper and his love, God needed to arrange your crucifixion from the foundation of the world. Wow. Now listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he quotes Genesis. For this reason, for thi- this is the reason 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his people, but marriage is also to be a means of shaping us into that picture, into that image. The image of Jesus Christ and him crucified, crucified willingly and freely in love. Well, how could God ever get a self-centered, frightened trophy hunter like me to sign up for such a painful program? <laughs> I mean, really. Chantilly and lace and a pretty face, a ponytail hanging down, a jiggling walk and a jiggling talk, giggling talk, <laughs> all designed to suck me in. Male and female, romance and hormones, Barry White, all designed to suck me in, all designed to lure me into forming a covenant without conditions so I'll be forced to love even when it hurts, so I'll be forced to forgive even as he's forgiven me, so I'll be forced to sacrifice myself, the trophy hunter, for somebody else. It's a trap, binding me to that which will kill me, a trap set by God from the foundation of the world. A guy said to his wife, he said, how can someone so stupid be so beautiful? And she said, well, God made me beautiful so you would marry me. And then she said, God made me stupid so I would marry you. <laughs> it's true, it's a trap. Marriage is God's sneaky way to get a person crucified. It's like you two sings. I can't live with or without you. Not with you, for you'll shatter my idolatrous image of you, and I'll kill you, and you'll try to crucify me, and not without you, because it's not good for Adam to be alone, and the loneliness is killing me. I can't live with or without you. And a voice from heaven booms, exactly! That's the point! You can't Live, you sitting in your stuffed chair, smoking a pipe, humming the 007 theme song, staring like an idiot at the trophies of your selfishness. You, ego, flesh, sinful self, alone in a hell of your own making, you must be crucified. And you see, when my marriage is working in that way, well, it's then that it's working as it was designed. When she takes most and gives least. And yet because of this crazy covenant, I have to bear her shame. Because it's then that I find myself looking a little more like Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, people get divorced based on the grounds of incompatibility. If you get divorced based on the grounds of incompatibility, that means you just don't get it. You're supposed to be incompatible. Who's compatible with a cross? If you're perfectly compatible, your marriage is perfectly pointless because it's never going to make you into the image of him. Jesus. You see, marriage really is God's sneaky way to get a person crucified. And now some of you are confused. 
Because you're thinking to yourself, well, golly, I kind of wanted to get married. <laughs> and now I'm not really sure I want to. Or maybe I do, because I really do want to look like Jesus. Well, take heart, because marriage isn't the only way to get crucified. It's not the only covenant that one can enter. In fact, in Christ, you enter a covenant for which marriage is only a shadow. And he tells you right up front, you want to be my disciple, we'll pick up a cross. And when you enter that covenant with him, you also covenant yourself to everyone in this room. You're covenanted to the church and take it from me. She is a bride entirely capable of crucifying you and teaching you about the love of Jesus, shaping you in his image. But for those of you that are married, please understand the purpose of your marriage is not to fill yourself with the trophies of your selfish desires. The purpose of marriage is to destroy that old self-centered self and prepare you for the glory of Jesus. You see, marriage is God's sneaky way to get a person crucified, but now pay attention. Crucifixion is God's sneaky way to give us new life. And so that night, back in 1978, I broke up with Susan. It was sometime around the Easter. And I remember as we talked on the phone, as soon as she said, okay, well, let's start dating other people, all of a sudden she became incredibly attractive again. And so in the morning, I drove over to her house looking for her, and she wasn't home. Her mom told me that she had gone to the park to feed the ducks. It was a gray day, damp with a steady rain. And I remember as I drove down Gallup Street in Littleton, I saw her in the distance. She didn't see me, but I saw her. She was walking alone in that gray rain, holding a bag of crumbs, and she was weeping. And I just watched her. Her heart was naked, exposed by the broken down walls of her throne room. And as I stared at her, I was captivated by something I hadn't seen before. Not Chantilly and lace and a pretty face, but love, bleeding love for me. A heart that had allowed itself to be crucified by me. I was captivated by the image of God in her. And then the thing that I sought to possess began to possess me. It possessed me all the way to the altar and four kids and 25 years of marriage. You know, we've all tried to possess the beauty of God, his goodness and his glory. That's why long ago we took the fruit from the forbidden tree. But now we look to the tree and what do we see? Body broken. Love bleeding for me, for you. The heart of God 
crucified for us. We see the image of God, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It possesses us. He romances us, possesses us, romances us, captivates us to his table where we're bound in an eternal covenant of grace, where we commune with his body broken and bloodshed, where we die with him and rise with him. You know, in this life, marriage is a picture of that and a place for that. I need to tell you that in my marriage, in my heart, the trophy hunter, he still is roaming around. He wants to possess my wife rather than love my wife. He wants to possess God rather than love God, but bound in a covenant, you see, he's forced to see beauties he can't possess, but that begin to possess him and kill him. And I'm saying this because I'm telling you it's a process. It doesn't happen all at once, but over time. Through marriage, God kills the old me and God gives birth to the new me. And as we grow older, physical beauty fades. Chantilly lace and a pretty face. Sometimes you get more of a jiggling walk, but you know what I mean. The physical beauty fades, but a new beauty grows. It's the image of God in us. Jesus in us. Love in us. Two bodies, one substance, and the substance is love. I'll end with this. Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia Bible College. It had been his dream to be the president ever since he was 16 years old. You know, his office and his position was his trophy room. And then one day tragedy hit. His wife Muriel was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And what was once a little piece of paradise began to look like a desolate wilderness, paradise lost. Muriel lost her memory, completely lost her memory of who she was and who her groom was. Robertson resigned from Columbia Bible College to care for his bride, Muriel. His friends told him not to. They said, you've been called by God to train pastors for the kingdom. Somebody else can take care of Muriel. This is your calling. But Robertson believed that a covenant was more powerful than a calling, or I should say that his covenant was his calling. And so instead of running a vast religious empire, Robertson now spent his time feeding Muriel, walking Muriel, changing Muriel's diapers, bathing his withered, incontinent bride. At times he lost his temper and at times he fails, yet now he says he likes it. It changed him that he's happier than most, and that he adores Muriel. You know, some things are loved because they're valuable, uh, but the best things are valuable because they've been loved. He's loved a lot of value into her and her into him. One day, a former student asked him, do you miss being president? He said, you know, I never thought about that, but that night I did. I couldn't sleep, and finally I prayed, and this is what he prayed. Father, 
it's okay. I like this assignment and I have no regrets, but something has occurred to me. If the coach puts a man on the bench, he must not want him in the game. You need not tell me, of course, but if you'd like to let me in on the secret, I'd like to know, why don't you need me in the game? Robertson said he didn't sleep well that night. He woke up with that question on his mind. On their morning walk around the block, Robertson, that morning, he held Muriel's hand because she was becoming unsteady and he tried to steady her so they walked around the block on their morning walk hand in hand and as they were walking he said a familiar form came up behind them he realized that it was the neighborhood drunk a local drunk he 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 staggered up behind them and when he couldn't get around them he lumbered out into the street and then he walked around in front of them and then he stopped right in front of them stared at them looked them up and down and then he said I like it (laughs) that's good I like it that's good and then he lumbered away Robertson chuckled when they returned to their little garden they sat down and then the word came back he realized that God had answered his question through that inebriated old drunk standing in the sidewalk. He'd answered his question. And he prayed, Oh, Father, it's you whispering in my spirit, isn't it? I like it. It's good. He prayed, Oh, God, I may be on the bench, but if you like it and you say it's good, That's all that counts. We see Robertson. He wasn't on the bench. Out of the game, yeah, but he was at the top of God's game. You see, he is God's trophy. And God's trophies go from things into persons, and they are never alone. Robertson's is God's trophy. He's God's trophy. A man created in God's image, in God's likeness, and God himself is captivated by the beauty. And now if you're thinking to yourself, oh man, I hate it when Peter talks about marriage. (laughs) I hate it because so bad I want a marriage like that. A marriage like that. I want to have a marriage like that. Listen, really, really, really well. You do. Your name is Muriel. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten who your groom is. Your groom is Jesus the Christ, and you are bound in an eternal covenant, and he's making you new. It makes all things new, especially you. Just before they returned to the garden, Jesus took bread at the dinner and he broke it, saying, This is my body which is given to you. Take and eat. It's a covenant. 
And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me, the blood of the covenant. You know, all of our marriages are broken, right? All of our singleness is broken. All of our relationships are broken because they are all designed to make us hungry for this. You are the bride. God is your helper. And this is his heart. His covenant for you. And now I invite you to commune with him at his table as he makes you in his image. If you come to this table, what you're saying is, yes. <laughs> Jesus, I do. Yes. Come to the table. Tell him again. Worship him. Because you're his trophy. Amen. And so we say glory to you, Joshua, Jesus, our bridegroom, high and lifted up on a cross, bleeding love for each and every one of us. Oh, Lord, um, we praise you and we thank you. And, Lord, I praise you and thank you for the lives in this room Giving communion is an amazing experience, Lord, because people come forward and I know some stories, people struggling with gender issues, people that have been through a divorce, people that have been remarried, people that have been married all their life, people that desperately want to be married, people in relationships that are falling apart, people that are getting crucified. And Lord Jesus, they all wonder, what's it all about? Why are you letting this happen? It's because you're making us in your image. And you're teaching us the depths of your love. You teach us through the pain. You teach us through the longing. You enlarge our hearts so that one day they would receive you. For Lord God, you create us in your image through the covenant love of our Lord Jesus the Christ who loves us from this dead world into your kingdom. And Lord God, the people in this room, they are Muriel. And so listen, Muriel. Sometimes I really struggle with my job. This is just Peter talking now. I wonder, God, what am I doing? Is this, does this matter at all? Well, I think this is my job, Muriel. Every week you're to wander into this place and I'm to whisper in your ear, In the name of Jesus, I love you, he says. And Muriel, I know who you are, even though you don't know who you are. And I will do it, Muriel. I will finish our story. Very soon, Muriel, you'll have a new mind. 
and a new body. But right now, Muriel, I'm giving you my heart. I am your groom, and you are my bride. And everything is going according to plan. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jesus, that that's your word to us. You are the Father's word to us. And so glory in the highest to you. In Jesus' name we say it. Amen. Amen. And now listen, if you'd like prayer, uh, we have a, a prayer ministry team. They're great. They're going to be in the chapel, uh, and they'd be happy to pray with you. If you'd like to stay here and just worship for a while, um, you see, Jesus really likes that. <laughs> You get this? This isn't about learning a bunch of formulas and a list that you can check off. It's about a relationship with him. So if you want to stay and just sing to him for a while, we invite you to do that. If you want to go out to dinner, that's great. He likes that too. Um, next week, we have house churches. So we want to remind you to find a house church near you and go. At the table, there's a directory of where the house churches are. Some of the house church pastors are hanging around here, and you can talk with them. But Muriel, he loves you, and he will do it. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.